0: Well good morning my brothers and sisters. Um, Today I want to explore with you a rather strange teaching that recently began to circulate among the students at our school in Hong Kong. This idea was the claim that fallen angels like fallen human beings can be forgiven and eternally saved. I've been teaching in a lot of different places in the last 25 years. Most of that time has been in Asia. I've encountered a lot of theological misconceptions and theological errors. They tend to repeat, but this one was a new one. I had never heard anything like this before. Um, When students came to me asking whether fallen angels could be saved, um, I, I was rather baffled to even have that question asked, but the exploration of this question is actually very useful and I hope you'll see why. Now as we consider this idea I want to start by noting that yes there is no specific statement in the Bible that says that fallen angels cannot be saved, but on the other hand the Bible never suggests that they can be saved I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And in these verses, the author is comparing angels to humans. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." Now, notice what the author has said. Negatively, Christ did not give aid to angels. Positively, his work on the cross did provide propitiation for human beings. Now, when we read a text like this, it's hard to see where anyone would get the idea that fallen angels can be saved. Nevertheless, when an idea like this begins to gain traction among believers, we can't afford to ignore it, and as we will see later on, the implications of the idea that angels can be saved are actually quite dangerous. Now, before we address this false teaching, I want to um, remind you of the nature of our ministry in Hong Kong. There are a lot of new faces here, and I think that's great. Um, Some of you may not know who I am or who my wife is. Um, I'm David Dean, my wife is named Mi Young. Our primary ministry in Hong Kong is theological education and I have the great privilege of teaching in a small school where I can teach Old Testament, New Testament, and systematic theology. And that's really fun, I must say. Um, we give bachelor's degrees, we give master's degrees, we're a fully accredited seminary, and Our program in many ways is patterned on the old DTS program for those of you who may know what that is. Um, Our program focuses on the 66 books of the Bible, systematic theology, and original languages. That's what we focus on and that makes us a little unique in Hong Kong I think. Um, I also from time to time have the privilege of preaching in local churches and until the last couple of years when travel became almost impossible, um, we would often travel to other countries in Asia to teach and preach there. This September will com- be the completion of our 13th year in Hong Kong. It's hard to believe that the time has gone so fast. Now, as we prepare to tackle our topic for today, I want to read a very familiar passage to you, Second um, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, and although I usually use the New King James, I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Translation. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. Now Paul is listing here Four areas in which scripture is useful teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. These four concepts are a study in themselves, but the key idea that I want to take away from this verse right now is that it's the duty of all of us who minister the word of God, whether they do it in a formal way as I do, or in an informal way, whether you're teaching your own children or leading a Sunday school class, it's our duty not only to teach in a positive sense of conveying the truth that we find in the scriptures, but also to actively and when necessary, aggressively expose and refute false teaching. This is our responsibility. Now, again, it was about two months ago that this idea that fallen angels could be saved came to my attention. And since I am the professor of systematic theology at our school, um, the faculty came to me and said, would you do some chapels on this topic? So I ended up doing four chapel messages so we could reach both the English-speaking and the Cantonese-speaking students. And this particular topic was the first one that I dealt with. I want to begin by considering eight basic facts that we know about angels from the scriptures. and I'm basically just going to list them for you. Fact number one, angels are spirits. Unlike we humans, they do not have permanent physical bodies. Fact number two, angels are immortal. Because they don't have physical bodies, they cannot die physically. Fact number three, angels are personal. This means that they have the same basic qualities of personality that we humans have. They have intellect, they have emotions, they have will, they have a moral sense of right and wrong. And that's very important to keep in mind. When you think about angels and human beings, we are the only creatures in the universe who bear God's image in the sense of being personal and spiritual. Now fact number four, angels are sexless. Now If you were to go on Google right now, please don't do it. I know you might have your phone, but if you were to go on Google and type in the word angels and look up what comes up under images, you'd probably discover that more than half of those images are female. We tend to use the word angel to describe a beautiful woman, but in the Bible, angels are always male. The pronouns that are used to refer to them are always male. That doesn't mean necessarily that angels are male in the sense that men are male but it does mean that angels are sexless. They don't come in two types as we do. Now, fact number five, the angels were created individually by God. Ezekiel 28.15 tells us that Satan, the greatest of the angels, was created directly by God. Psalm 104, verse four, tells us more about the angels in these words. God made his angels' spirits his ministers, a flame of fire. Now, this verse confirms the fact that God created each of the angels individually. Now, fact number six, which is extremely important, flows from fact number five. Unlike we humans, the angels are not a race. They're not a race. They're not the product of reproduction. Now, Jesus confirms this in Matthew 22, 30, when he says that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And we also know that they were each created individually. Now this distinction between humans and angels is extremely important. We humans are a race. We're all descended from one original set of parents, Adam and Eve. Adam is the head of our race. But in contrast, angels are not a race. We have a racial head. They do not. Now, fact number seven, angels exist to serve the elect, and they will also be judged by the elect. The author of Hebrews speaks of the serving role of angels in chapter 1, verse 4, with these words. He says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verse 3, Paul reminds us that we who are the redeemed among mankind will one day judge the angels. He asks this question, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, fact number eight, the last in this list. Satan was the first of the angels to rebel against God, and after Satan rebelled, one third of the remaining angels joined him in his rebellion. The story of Satan's rebellion against God is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, and we don't really have time to go into those accounts right now. For our purposes, the key idea here is that after Satan fell, many of the other angels chose to join him in his rebellion against the authority of their Creator. The Apostle John describes that terrible event in Revelation chapter 12 verses 3 and 4 in these words. He says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's a symbolic description of the joining of other angels in his rebellion. Now make sure that you understand what we're being told here. We're being told that every fallen angel became a fallen angel by his own individual personal choice. I want you to keep that idea in mind because we're going to see later this distinction between angels and the way that they fell and humans in the way that we fell is extremely important. Now with these facts as a foundation, I wanna turn our attention now to the reasons why this idea that fallen angels can be saved is both false and also theologically dangerous. And the first passage that I wanna look at is Romans chapter five, uh, starting with verses 12. Now, when I was in seminary, I remember one of my professors saying that Romans five twelve to 21 is the most theologically deep passage in the Bible. And he said, you can always tell who is a theologian because if you crack open their Bible, it will open to Romans chapter 5. So all of the students started leaving their Bibles open to that page when they went to bed at night. Um, this truly is one of the deepest theological passages in the Bible. It deals with the consequences of Adam's sin for the human race. It deals with how Christ made salvation possible. And it also answers a difficult question. This is a question that you may have asked yourself, or perhaps when you were sharing the gospel with somebody else, they may have asked you this question. Here's the question. How is it possible for the sacrifice of just one person to make the salvation of many people possible. Did you ever wonder about that? A one-for-one trade seems to make sense, but how could one person pay for the sins of many sinful people? Well, God gives us the answer to that question here in Romans chapter five, and it's a very surprising answer. Now, if you have your Bible, you may wanna start looking at verse 12. I'm just going to read verse 12, and I want you to pay attention to how it ends. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, in this verse, Paul is reminding us of a fact that we all know death came to the world, it came to the human race in particular, because of the sin of Adam. The Bible tells us, that before the fall took place in Genesis chapter three, there was no death of any sort. But when Adam sinned in Genesis chapter three, God imposed the penalty of the single law that he had given to Adam in Genesis chapter two. Now, I want you to listen to that law, Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, we all know what happened. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan led Adam and Eve into rebellion against God. They broke God's law by eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And God kept his promise. He did keep his promise. Death in all of its terrible forms came to the human race on the very day that they ate of that tree. The irreversible process that would lead to the death of Adam and Eve began. Their fellowship with God was broken. The curse came upon the earth and upon every living creature. But getting back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, there's more to see in verse 12. I want you to look at the end of verse 12 in your Bible. Do you see that there's a dash at the end of the verse? Now, every modern English translation that I've checked has that dash. That includes the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, the NET. They all have a dash at the end of that verse. Now, that dash is telling us something. It's telling us that Paul didn't finish his sentence. And the question is why? He interrupted his words to give us a vital clarification because without that clarification, we will not understand what he is about to say. Now, I want you to jump down to verse 18. Paul says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation... Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now, if you compare the beginning of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 18, you can see that it's in verse 18 where Paul resumes the thought that he started in verse 12. Now, we'll come back to verse 18 later, but I want to take some time to look at the clarification that Paul interrupted what he was saying in verse 12 to give to us. So let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, the transgression of Adam was disobeying the law that God had given him in Genesis chapter 2. Now, if you have studied the book of Genesis at all, you know that two ideas come up really clearly in chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 4, we see the story of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. What do we learn there? We learn that all descendants of Adam and Eve are sinners. They inherited that quality from their parents. And in Genesis 5, if you read through that chapter, it's actually quite boring. It gives you a list of people, and eight times you hear, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times. But notice what Paul says here in verse 13 of Romans chapter 5. He says, quote, Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death still reigned. Now stop and think about this. The first law that God gave, he gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Adam broke that law, and as a result, he and Eve were cast out from the garden. Once they were out of the garden and no one had access to the tree of life, it was impossible to break that law. Now, God didn't give any additional laws to mankind until Genesis chapter 9, just after the flood. There he gave two laws. The first one was, don't commit murder. And the second one was, don't intentionally eat blood. Centuries later, God gave the Ten Commandments. Now, Paul is pointing pointing out to us here in Romans that we know of the laws of Genesis 9 and the laws of Moses because Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now listen again to verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And you see what Paul is saying? When there's no law to break, sin is not imputed. And that means when there's no law to break... God doesn't impose a penalty for sin. So, according to that principle, we would expect that from the time that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, at least until Genesis 9, nobody would die. But people did die. Notice how Paul highlights this surprising fact of death in verse 14. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now, again, Adam's transgression was breaking the law that he had been given in Genesis 2, but the people who lived between Genesis 4 and Genesis 9 had no law to break. On the basis of what Paul says here, those people shouldn't have died, but they did. How does Paul explain this universal fact of death? Well, he gives us the answer, but it may not be what we expect, and quite frankly, it may not be what we like. Here's the answer people died because they were in Adam when he sinned. Let me say that again. People died because they were in Adam. When he sinned now I'm going to read verse 12 again, and I'm going to add two words at the end of it, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not changing scripture. I'm simply adding the missing concept so that we can see it as a unit. Verse 12: therefore, just as through one man' sin uh, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Because all sinned, now here are the extra two words, in Adam. Now verses 13 and 14 make it clear that the words in Adam belong here. Now let me put that another way. When Adam sinned because you and I and every other human being were in him genetically, we sinned. We participated in his sin. Now, that fact has far-reaching implications. As far as God is concerned, every living human being who has ever lived participated in the sin of Adam. And the fact that we were in Adam when he sinned is the explanation for why people died between Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 9. Now, if you have never thought this through, I don't blame you if it disturbs you. It disturbs me. It certainly doesn't fit in with the way that we think about guilt and responsibility. For example, imagine that you have a father who commits a crime before you are even born. Would any law in any country permit you to be prosecuted and punished for his crime? No. No. Human law would never allow a child to be punished for the crime of his father. But God's law, as it applies to the sin of Adam, is different. God's law, according to the Bible, says that because you and I were in Adam when he sinned, you and I are guilty of his sin. Now, hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought. I'm going to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read to you verses 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. Paul says, "'For since by man came death,' by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive." Now you may notice that the word man, the Greek word anthropos, it appears twice in those verses. Now in the Greek language it has no article. There's no the, there's no a. Now the New American Standard translates it a little bit differently. The New King James simply says, by man, by man. The New American Standard um, translates it this way, for since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now both of those translations are perfectly correct and they do not contradict each other. Whichever way it's translated, The emphasis is on one man. By one man, death came. By one man, resurrection comes. The first man is Adam, and the second man is Christ. Now, back to Romans chapter 5, let's go back to verse 18, where Paul picks up the thought of verse 12. He says, Therefore, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now you notice here, too, that the emphasis is on one man in each case. The first one is Adam. The second one is Christ. And then we come to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now, listen to me very carefully. Paul has told us that through the sin of just one man, our shared ancestor, Adam, all of mankind became guilty. In other words, when Adam sinned, we participated in his sin, and therefore we are all guilty of his sin. Now, I'm with you. That idea sounds terribly, terribly wrong. It sounds unjust in the way that we think. But in reality, this fact is the key to God's plan of salvation. If it were not true... Our salvation would not be possible. Let me explain why. The reason has to do with how God's law works. In God's law, just as in human law, precedent is extremely important. The precedent that the disobedience of one man made all men guilty makes it possible for the righteous act of one man to make all people righteous. Let me say that in another way. If it were not true that we all fell in Adam, it would not be possible for us all to be saved in Christ. Now hold that idea, we'll come back to it. Maybe you're beginning to see why it's impossible for the fallen angels to be saved. That impossibility involves the difference between angels and humans. We humans have a racial head. Theologians call the fact that we have a racial head seminal headship. We all fell in Adam when he fell. Multiple humans can be saved by the sacrifice of one sinless man because we are a race. But the angels aren't a race. They have no racial head. Every one of them fell by his own individual choice. Each one of them had his own individual fall. Each one of the fallen angels made his own choice to rebel against God. And here we see this fundamental difference between humans and angels. The fallen angels did not fall in Satan, but we fell in Adam. Now let's consider the implications of this fact, and and we're gonna do a little speculation here, okay? Suppose for a moment that God wanted to save the fallen angels by providing an atoning sacrifice for them just as he did for us, fallen mankind. Now we already know that God's law allows for substitutionary atonement. Now this is just speculation, okay? Don't get upset, but let's just imagine for the moment that just as the second person of the Trinity became incarnate as a human, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, became incarnate as an angel. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, angels don't have bodies. The whole concept of an incarnation as an angel doesn't work. I recognize that. Um, but if somehow the third person of the Trinity could add an angelic nature to himself, just as the Son added a human nature to himself. Could the Holy Spirit then die a substitutionary death to make the salvation of fallen angels possible? Well, the answer is no. First of all, angels can't die, right? That's a problem right there. But more importantly, even if the Holy Spirit could somehow die a substitutionary death for the fallen angels, he could only save one. Why? Because the angels aren't a race. Since it's not true that many angels fell in a single racial head, it's not possible for many angels to be saved by a single substitutionary sacrifice. Let me say that again, since it's not true that many angels fell in a single racial head, it's not possible for many angels to be saved by a single substitutionary sacrifice. So there we have the answer to the question that was raised at the beginning of the message. Is it possible for fallen angels to be saved? The answer is no. It's clearly and unambiguously no. Now before I move to a conclusion, I wanna deal with two important issues so I don't leave you with any confusion because I may have raised some confusion in your minds. The first one is this. We need to deal with the fact that Christ's propitiatory sacrifice for many does not lead to universal salvation. The fact that Christ was sacrificed for many doesn't lead to universal salvation. Now listen again to 1 Corinthians 15.22, which we read earlier. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, if this were the only verse in the entire Bible, we might think that Paul was teaching universalism, the idea that every person will be saved. We know that idea is false. The rest of Scripture makes it clear. Only those who believe the gospel will be saved. Now, here we come to a ticklish issue Because here at CBC, we have godly people who believe in unlimited atonement and godly people who believe in limited atonement. Unlimited atonement is the idea that when Christ died on the cross, he was paying for the sins of all human beings of all time, regardless of whether those individuals will be saved, regardless of whether they are among the elect. Limited atonement, as I understand it, is the idea that when Christ died on the cross, He paid only for the sins of the elect. Now, godly people hold both of these ideas. Personally, I hold to unlimited atonement. I'm not going to jump into that pool and try to settle that issue today. But whichever of those positions you hold, we agree that the Bible makes it clear that only those who believe will be saved. And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 22, in Christ all shall be made alive, he's not teaching universal salvation. His point is simply that everyone who becomes in Christ by believing the gospel will be saved. Now, by the way, I'm sure you've read the book of Ephesians. You know, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in that long sentence, how many times do we hear in Christ, in Christ, in him, in the beloved? If you ever wondered what that phrase means, the answer is found here in Romans chapter 5, right? When an individual believes the gospel, he ceases being in Adam and he becomes in Christ. There's a sense in which we lose our racial head Adam and we gain a new racial head Christ. Romans 8.29 we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When God's process of redeeming us is finished, we will no longer look like Adam. We will look like Jesus. And Jesus looks like the Father. So, when Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15:22, "For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive," he's not teaching that everyone will be saved. Only those who believe the gospel will be saved. Now, the second issue that I want to deal with is why this idea that fallen angels can be saved is so dangerous. The answer is simple. God's word allows only one way of salvation. The only way of salvation is atonement by a sinless substitutionary sacrifice, and that sacrifice must be of the same kind as the guilty parties who need forgiveness. Further, his law only allows salvation of many when those who need salvation fell in a single racial head, Now, neither of those conditions can be met in the case of fallen angels, and therefore to suggest that fallen angels can be saved is really to suggest that there is another possible way of salvation. Such an idea undermines everything that the Bible teaches. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or the words of Jesus in John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, let me close with a few final comments. First, I hope that you're convinced that fallen angels cannot be saved. Now, you may never have asked this question, and perhaps the question doesn't really mean much to you in and of itself. We've seen that the Bible never suggests that fallen angels can be saved. And on the contrary, Scripture clearly predicts that fallen angels are doomed to eternal condemnation. Let's look at a few verses that make this clear. In Matthew 8:29, the demons ask this question of Jesus, "Have you come to torment us before the time?" In Matthew 25:41, Jesus speaks of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 Peter tells us quote, "God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment." Jude verse 6 says this: "The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day." All of these passages suggest that there is no hope for the fallen angels. And our study of God's plan of salvation in Romans 5 has made it clear that fallen angels cannot be saved because they have no racial head. It's simply not possible. Now, to repeat, and I'm sure you notice that my style of teaching is very repetitious. I hope you don't mind. Um, I hope you understand now why fallen angels can't be saved, but more importantly, and this is my second point, I hope that our examination of Romans chapter 5 has clarified for you how God's plan of salvation for us, for sinful humanity, how it works. Now, most Christians understand the basic idea of substitutionary atonement. They understand that God's law allows for a sinless substitute to pay for the guilt of a sinner. But perhaps you never thought about how it's possible for the sacrifice of just one sinless person to pay for the sins of multiple people. We've seen the answer to that question today. The answer to that question is this fact. Because many people fell in the one man Adam, it's possible for many people to have their sins paid for by the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. Now it's true, this is not the way that we normally think about guilt. It's not the way that we normally think about justice. But God's ways are different than ours. They really are. And we should rejoice that they are. We should rejoice that they are. Isaiah chapter 55, you may know these verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The ways of the triune God are unique. His grace is astonishing. His wisdom is beyond measure. And so I want to finish with some very familiar words from Romans chapter 11 at the very end of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him? that it should be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Will you pray with me? Father, your ways are so different and our guilt is so deep, but our guilt was not an obstacle to your mercy because your justice found a way for you to justly justify the unjust without being unjust yourself. Father, we instinctively rebel against the idea that we are sinners because we participated in the sin of Adam. That seems so far from our way of thinking. But we thank you, Father, that you made us a race so that it was possible for us to be saved. Father, for those of us in this room who have received your gift of eternal life, we rejoice, we praise you, we thank you, and we marvel at your wisdom. Father, if there's anyone in this room who still walks in darkness, who has not yet come to you on your terms, through faith alone, in your Son, apart from works. We pray that you would give him or her no peace of mind until he or she comes to you recognizing that Christ is the only way and gladly calling upon his name for salvation. This is our prayer through our Savior, our great High Priest, our perfect sacrifice and our coming King. Amen.